Okay, let's uh, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we're gathered together again this morning on another Sunday free to come together and study and learn and worship and equip ourselves uh, so that we can be witnesses to your uh, to the lost and so that we can be witnesses greater than that still of your glory. So help us to bear testimony to that today in our speaking and our listening and our rejoicing and our singing and all that we do in small groups that are gathering. We seek uh, our, our ambition, Lord, is to be pleasing you. So anoint our time together for the sake of your holy servant, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to have a split section because we're wrapping up our survey of the Old Testament where we've been spending, as you know, one uh, uh, we do one book per week. I think we've made an exception in the beginning for Genesis and maybe one other book. Uh, so, But in, in order to wrap it up before our summer recess, which begins really June 25th, uh, we have the tag team today, Justin and I. Uh, so I'm taking the book of Zephaniah, and he is taking the book of um, Haggai. Haggai. Uh, so let's get uh, right to it. And then, uh, and then next week I will do the book of Zechariah, and he'll wrap it up, Justin will wrap it up the following week with Malachi. And we will have completed our task of getting through the Old Testament survey, and it will be on our website. I got caught up this morning uploading five or six weeks of... Uh, study that I hadn't done, so that's all up there. So we'll always have a resource on our website for a survey of the Old Testament, which is just fantastic. Might be one or two books missing because I lost the recorder at one point. Um, shame on me, but I bought another one. So, uh, and I didn't charge the treasurer for it either. So just so you know, it's all on the level. All right. Okay, Zephaniah, God's righteous, wrathful, rejoicing reign over all races. God's righteous, wrathful, rejoicing reign over all races, whose name means Yahweh hides. And I have no idea why that is significant. I don't know why the commentators even bother to inform us of that, because there's not a whole lot hidden in this. God's wrath and God's um, righteousness is revealed in vivid, um, striking, poetic language that not only should give terror to those that hear it, but also included is a great deal of hope for those that are willing to hide themselves in the Lord. Uh, a little unusual in that Zephaniah has the most complete genealogy of any of the prophets. Typically you'll see, if anything at all, just the son of one, right? So you have Isaiah, the son of... I don't recall either, so... Uh, yeah, so... so uh, but we actually have four or five generations back, and... It's believed that the basis uh, for this conclusion is that the Hezekiah that's mentioned in verse 1 in this genealogy is, is very likely King Hezekiah. And that they wouldn't have gone through the painstaking process of reviewing all those genealogies if that wasn't the case. And so, that being so, it also gives Zephaniah the opportunity to see what's going on in the royal court with the leaders that God is going to uh, rail against in this book at some point because he's part of the royal family, uh, so that he would have seen the evil of Judah's leaders on a regular basis. Uh, prophesied during the reign of Josiah, probably before the major reforms that Josiah put into effect, and the reason I say that is just you know, evidenced by all the evil that he was condemning. So if there was some sort of, uh, if there was a, process underway whereby people were beginning to align themselves once again with the Torah and with God's commandments that wouldn't have shown up a whole lot yet since it was still infected in all the places where Josiah first cleansed. You know, he cleansed the temple and he burned bones. of He did all these, these wild and crazy things, right, to just purge. So it's not likely uh, it's not likely that it was during the, that time. So maybe who knows entirely. Contemporary of Habakkuk and Jeremiah, and not surprisingly, sounds a little bit like them and other prophets uh, of the time. In Judah, by the way, he's a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And the main prophecy was concerning the coming day of the Lord, and judgments against Judah, and then in judgments against the many nations around them. And again, this book has some of the most stark language. Uh, where God is just... I mean, he opens right up with it, as we'll see in a minute. Uh, the structure is similar to Isaiah and Ezekiel, where you have a warning of destruction against Judah, you have a warning of judgment against the foreign nations, and then there's mention of future eschatological blessings. 
So God is faithful to always hold out his hand once again to the rebellious people that are his own and also the rebellious nations all around that don't even know Yahweh as God and who continue to oppress Israel when they are given the opportunity to be used as God's sword against Israel and in the process of that incur God's wrath against themselves for the, for the oppression and for the injustice that they bring in their, uh, in their reign and their rule whether it was sort of the temporary um, arrangements that were going on before the, the big conquerors uh, conquest up in uh, northern kingdom by Assyria and then down south in Babylon God always has some little promise sort of hidden in there uh, let's take a read through uh, verses uh, well, 1 through 6 really the word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah the son of Cushai son of Gedaliah son of Amariah son of Hezekiah in the days of Josiah the son of Ammon king of Judah and then God just jumps right in with this he says I will utterly sweep everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet swear by Milcom, another a name for Molech, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of Him. So, you know, we ask ourselves, what do you do with a building that just no longer serves its purpose at all? You know what I mean? Oftentimes, you just tear the thing down. Right? You, just, you just tear it down. I mean, this is this is um, this is exactly what we what we almost see here is almost like an undoing of creation. It's like God's bringing everything back to its chaotic state. You know, He's just going to sweep everything away—the man, the beast, the fish of the sea—and He's just going to cut it all off from the face of the earth. And why why is that sort of uh, why is that why is that significant? Or what does this tell us? What is life without God like, <laughs> right? Before God, yes, Mark. I was just going to say that it indicates no value, no value in anything that you see. Yeah, it's no longer good, right? When when God created, you recall back in Genesis, you'll consistently see that God stood back and said it was good, right? And again, that's not a statement about the moral condition of the thing. God's saying it's good, meaning this is exactly what it needs to be. This is serving a very particular function. Uh, this is exactly what I intend to do to process humankind and make them in my image and do all that I need to do. God stood back and saw it was good. And I've mentioned this before in the same way you would say, again, this is a really good computer. Or you did a really good job, right? You're saying something about the way that it was done is exactly in line with the, what it was, the way it was supposed to be done. So it is serving its function well. Well, if it's no longer doing that, then it's no longer necessary. Mm-hmm. Right? So God is just going just to wipe it out. And we just don't take that. You know, we read these prophets like we read them, and we just we need to be mindful that this same God today is looking down upon his creation and seeing all that's going on. And he hasn't changed. <laughs> he has not changed. Uh, the, the promised wrath and righteous indignation of God is coming. But in the meantime, the hope is held out always, which is in part why we're here. You get to verse 5 and 6 and you see, well, why? What's the reason for God's judgment? Well, they're bowing down on roofs to the host of heaven. (coughs) They're living a a synchristic life, right? What's syncretism? Yes? Mixing paganism and God's commands. Exactly. That just doesn't work. My daughter had a friend over a couple weeks ago and they came in to me and they said, hey, try this drink. And it looked like chocolate milk. (laughs) it was chocolate milk and barbecue sauce and pepper and and pepper and salt and uh, a bunch of other things I used to do that when I was a kid myself too but that that just doesn't go together right I mean it just tastes absolutely horrible that's exactly what's sort of going on there when you you can't right and Jesus said this right you can't serve God in mammon when you can't possibly serve God in anything else because the serving and worship God is by its very nature exclusive of all other things and he goes on to say, those who have turned back from following the Lord, so they once followed him, they no longer follow him, and they don't seek the Lord or inquire him. It's like they have just forgotten about God. 
It's like God no longer is. And so this is God's way of saying, this is what it's like when God no longer is. Okay? Utter and complete destruction. And in verse 8, he says, I will punish uh, on the day of the Lord's sacrifice. <laughs> on the day of the Lord's sacrifice. So here, here God's going to make a sacrificial lamb out of these nations, uh, out of Judah. I will punish the officials and the king's sons and all who array themselves in foreign attire. Taking on the customs and the cultures of the surrounding nations, which God consistently warned them not to not to do. And that yes, this is something that we see repeated through the Old Testament that when the Israelites make themselves like the other nations, they mm-hmm. subject themselves to the same treatment. Why not? I mean, God is is, is fair and just. Yeah, he's 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 impartial. And just because he chose a people through whom he would reveal himself and the way that God is. And, through whom he would define reality, or, 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 or um, uh, ex- you know, give reality to people, expose them to what's real. So, then down in verse eleven, it says, "Wail, O inhabitants of the mortar, for all the traders are no more; all who weigh out the silver are cut off." This is something else we see in God's judgments, where He devastates economies. You see this in Ezekiel, you see this in Isaiah, you see this in the book of Revelation, right, where the merchants cry out and they wail because Babylon, the great city, where they did all their businesses. So God is in the business of undoing creation to to an extent, and he's also in the business uh, of of what's going on, just wrecking economies. Why would that be? Yeah, right, sin. What's, what's What's God saying by doing that? What's God saying by destroying economies? Well, I just I noticed this uh, a few times when I read through the Bible again this year, and I'm thinking, whenever God uh, brings about destruction, at the, usually in the end of it, He says, "Then they will know that I am the Lord." Mm. Yeah. And it's repeated several times. And I'm thinking, okay. Yeah. I mean, I know I believe you know we believe that uh, God exists because of the beautiful surroundings He's given us mm. in the creation. But the nations apparently will not understand it until they see serious mm. destruction. Mm. And then they will know that the Lord is God. Yeah, yeah, they haven't yet begun to see climate change. <laughs> the climate is eventually going to change very radically, <laughs> right? I mean, we're going from going from one to half a degree centigrade of potentially man contributed increase in temperature to. The burning up of things, right? He's going to turn on that dial up real fast and real high. Um, so God does that because the economies also became the thing that was worshipped, right? The money, the process, just the things that people were entailed with. So God's just wrecking everything that he gave for people to be people. He said, this is what you need to be human. Oh, you're not going to be human? Then you don't need this. Verse 12, uh, the last part of it, the Lord... The Lord will not do good. Uh, I'm sorry. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, "The Lord will not do good, nor will He do ill." This is like sort of the the God of Deism, right? It's just off there. He started things, got it in motion, and now He just sort of hands off and let it go its own course, right? The God's not really involved in His creation. God's not going to do good. He's not going to do bad. He's not going to do anything, right? He did it. He made it. He's gone. He wants us to take care of everything from there. That's a lie, man. That's a big lie. We see again uh, at the end of verse 13. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. This is something else we consistently see God do in His wrath. He devastates the produce. He devastates the olives, the figs. He moves on Habakkuk. Though there be no figs, right? But there's, there's no, no olive oil. None of the things that are necessary, as we reviewed last week, for the cult of, of Jewish worship, right? So, God's going to devastate that. Uh, he's just taking away everything. And what does he say it's going to be? A day of wrath, in verse 15. And we see distress and anguish. You see these couplets. Distress and anguish, ruin and devastation, darkness and gloom. Right? You've got this trifecta of wrath going on. And, and why? why? Why in threes? Why threes, do you suppose? Well, yes. Because it shows completeness. Yeah, right, right. In Hebrew numerology, right? Three is always the number of, of completeness. So, in as many ways as can be said poetically and in the language that the people are accustomed to, this is going to be a total devastation. Right? And yet, uh, and you can see in verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. So money isn't going to save you, man. I mean, there's no distinctions when it comes to the wrath of God. 
All the wealth in the world isn't going to make a bit of difference. Money doesn't save anything. It can't. It, it might buy you away out of a little bit of trouble and difficulty, and it may work in briberies with injustice and economic oppression of certain peoples and all that thing, right? The the beauty of capitalism exploited for the purposes of profit and evil, right? Turned against its the intent of that system to benefit the many by benefiting the few. Not on that day. Never on the day of God's wrath. He will bring utter ruin. Utter ruin. Ask guys like Bernie Madoff. Right? Ask people like that. Yeah. Well, God's wrath comes upon them in an individual sort of sense there. As a warning to others. Always as a warning to others. And yet there is hope. We go over in chapter 2. And just before God begins to rail against the other nations and what He's going to do to them, we do see little, little bits of hope here. Look in verse 3. Seek the Lord, all you of the humble land, who do His, ju- do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps... You may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Right? Perhaps he may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. <laughs> I remember one time watching the, with the kids, these Frosty the Snowman things, and there was this jerk magician that kept on trying to destroy Frosty. You know, he's just a jerk. And so, and so Santa shows up, right? And he gets, he confronts this jerk, and he says, "You go home and you write ten zillion times. I am very sorry for what I've done to Frosty and his friends. And maybe it's gazillion. Just, just maybe there'll be something in your stocking tomorrow. You know what I mean? It's like go home and write ten gazillion times. Those, there's hope. So we have a little bit of hope here in the midst of this." This powerful language of utter ruin and destruction, right? Um, remember Habakkuk, he prayed, Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. Yes, right? In your wrath, remember mercy. And God does. Yes. In one Talk. sense, in Romans 1.18, Paul makes a, uh, a uh, you could say, a statement for all of humanity when he says, For the wrath of God is real, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the yeah. truth and unrighteousness. Mm-hmm. And of course, the context there would be both Jew and Gentile. Sure. Yeah, so he's addressing. He's kind of making a, in, uh, a New Testament, a New Covenant, concluding the mark about all humanity, which yep. is recorded for us in the individual prophets of the Old. Uh, he just, he, he's the unchanged in God, right? He just continues to. Right. In, in verse 7, we have another little hint here of, of hope. The seacoast shall become the possession of the remnant of the house of Judah. So there's going to be a remnant of the house of Judah. And they're going to be given possession of the seacoast, where, where currently some of these enemies are that God is about to, to rail against, right? Because you go back to verse 5, and it talks about, Woe to you, the inhabitants of the seacoast, you nations of the Cherethites, right? The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of Philistines. I'll destroy you. And what you have is going to go to a little remnant that I have. And then in verses 8 to 15 of chapter 2, God just opens up, and the, the prophet Zephaniah just opens up in his judgments on the foreign nations. And so, we look at verses, a couple of verses to give an example of the why. In verse 8, I have heard the taunts of Moab in the revilings of the Ammonites, how they have taunted my people and made boasts against their territory. God doesn't really abide, you may not seem it, God does not abide people taunting his enemies, the enemies of God's people taunting them. Right? There's a lot of that going on in the culture right now. You have to, we got to look at the nature and the character of God and see how he deals with this. God is not always going to suffer people to abide and rail against his people. It's, he's going to put a stop to it. It's just a matter of time, right? How they taunted my people and made boasts against their territory, as if it was them that took it over by their power. You see, the whole way that they think about this. Now, I don't know if there's a right way to be used as a sword of God, but that isn't it. And then in verse 10, this shall be their lot in return for their pride. Why? Because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. Nobody was around to say to them, you, you are messing with the people that belong to the Lord of hosts. Are you out of your mind? You know? I mean, part of you wants to say that to 
those elements in the culture that rail against you know Christianity. Say, do you understand what you're saying? Who you're oh, saying no. this against? These are God's people, yeah. the Lord, the King of the universe, and you're saying this, Justin. This is why it's such an immense privilege that we bear the name of the Lord. That's right. Because we bear a connection to His glory, such that when He defends us, He is defending His own glory. Mm. You know, Peter, what it was, you know, counting it all joy because they were beaten for the sake of the Lord. They, they thought it was a great thing. All right. I was going to say, if they don't respect or believe, even believe there's a God, they're not going to respect or uh, respect or honor His people. Mm-hmm. Uh, verse 11, we see that God's destroying what people depend on other than Himself. So God is in the business of destroying, again, idols and false gods. The Lord will be awesome against them, for He will famish all the gods of the earth. How do you famish an idol? How do you starve it to death? How do you starve an idol to death? Well, you destroy the economy, for one. There goes one idol. You destroy the produce, so there goes another one. Right? There goes another God. You, you destroy you know, whatever it is. God knows individually and He knows collectively as a culture what it is that that society is depending upon. What is God is. And God is going to love that language. He is going to famish those gods. Yes, talk in that mark. Are that Jewish alliance will go back into farming in order to feed the church in the near future? No, no, because we're not the objects of his wrath. We're vessels of mercy. No worries. Yes. What, what I find very uh, unbelievable is that uh, apparently the Dutch just had a great victory because they, they got enough people in the party in the, in the parliament to go against the prevailing effort over there to, to hmm. close the farms. Right. I mean... The Netherlands is one of the most productive farmlands in the world. Okay. And uh, they, they're bent on shutting them all down. Hmm. It's crazy. I don't. I don't. How do you? How does that? It doesn't make any sense at all. Well, it does if you think for, for the, the, the the process of farming is is doing something to the oh, climate. Oh yeah, they do. I mean, right. So at some point, two hundred thousand cattle because they're they're pooping. Too, or they're you know. Oh yeah. They win too much. No, they wanted to. They were. They were. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to believe this. There were places that want to minimize the amount of cattle you have because cow flatulence yes. was contributing. To, so, so if 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 the climate has become an idol, what do you suppose God can do to destroy that? Right? How is God going to destroy climate? Oh man, you know what I mean? Make people crazy. Uh, and then you and so you get to the uh, verse fourteen. And he, he, so he's railing against the Cushites and he's railing against the Assyrians. It's like four or five races, four or five people groups he's railing against, right? He says, Herds in, shall lie down in her midst, all kinds of beasts, even the owl and the hedgehog shall lodge in her capitals. So the, the luxurious cities will be so abandoned and so decimated that animals feel safe dwelling there. You know, animals are typically afraid of people until they sort of acclimate them. So squirrels might hang around your house more than you want. But, you know, a bear comes into the yard, you make a little bit of noise, and most part he's going to get out of there, right? Same thing with deer, right? You make the slightest noise. And we have some lovely does that come up into my backyard. They even come right up to the house now. They're getting brave and eating from the, from the garden because we're very quiet when they come. But all we're going to do is make a All the dog has to do a bark once. Those things are, no, they're gone. But here, they're very comfortable. Living it. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie I Am Legend with Will Smith, but you have this, you know, Manhattan is now all overgrown with weeds and everything, and the deer and everything are just, you know, they're walking around the, the abandoned cars and they're eating there and they're living in the buildings. Just this sort of dystopian look to it. And that's what God says. I'm just going to wipe it all out. And He can. So, um, in, in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3, we see that God's wrath is justified, right? His, why his wrath is justified is if he hasn't said it enough already. Again, we see in verses 1 and 2, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within are roaring lions. Ravenous, just destroying people. Okay, just eating people up. Uh, her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. So the people that are in place to be able to administer justice, and God is so so um, so set on justice. You know, God appears that that thing about justice appears everywhere, right? Um, throughout the prophets, 
and God has told his people always how important justice is. Right? So they're committing great injustice, the very ones that are in place to make sure that justice happens. And, and, and what, what can the righteous do, in a sense, right? Yeah. Uh, King Thayden said in Lord of the Rings, what can men do against such reckless hate? Mm. Yeah. You know, when, the, when it just seems so overwhelming and devastating. Well, it, it, today it seems like our, our justice, so-called justice system is attacking the American people. Yep. It, it, look it, at the J6. The it, it's a good example of it. It's a good example of it. We see it going on. Always going on before us. And it's proliferating. Um, in verse 3, you, as I just read, this is not how officials are supposed to rule. And then in verse 5, the Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Every Each dawn he does not fail. But the unjust knows no shame. So the shameless injustice, despite the fact of God modeling justice for them daily. God is always modeling justice for them. He knows. People know what is just. So they're being accused. God is railing against them. You know what is just. You know what is right. And you're not doing it. And verse 7, The more God spoke, the more they turned away. I said, Surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have pointed against you. But all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. This is the insanity, isn't it? This is absolute insanity. Over in verse 9, The Lord converts. Right? He says, for at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. Talk about all nations now, including his own people. I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him of one accord. So this has to be a work of God, right? Because the Lord converts, right? And this is like when he says that he'll, he'll purify the speech. I, I thought of the hot coals on Isaiah's mouth, right? Mm-hmm. But it took away the impurity. So God's going to take away their impurities. And you'll see in verse 12 and 13 what the remnant looks like. I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They will seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice, speak no lies, nor shall be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. Jesus said of, uh, I think it was Philip, Behold, an Israelite indeed, whose tongue, in whose tongue there is no deceit. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. That's what the remnant will look like. That's what we should be looking like. Are we a humble, lowly people? Are we consistently seeking our refuge in the Lord? Do we do no injustice? Do we speak no lies? We know what God thinks about those things. And then finally, to wrap it up in, in two minutes here, as we go fast forward through this book of Zephaniah, so we can get on a Haggai, um, verses 16 to 7 just this amazing scripture on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem fear not O Zion let not your hands grow weak the Lord your God is in your midst the mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness he will quiet you by his love mm-hmm. and he will exult over you with loud singing mm-hmm. so you would think with all this good news that God is going to do for them you would think that they'd be the ones that are rejoicing but no we see God rejoicing over his people with gladness we have to think of God that way. For the Christian, we can. God is never ever going to be wrathful towards us. He, he, he wiped out his wrath account on Jesus. There's nothing left. He's got no wrath to spend on his people. This is what God has for his people. God at this moment rejoices, I believe, over us with gladness. He certainly quiets us by his love. Right? Look at what his love has done. It's brought about reconciliation. So he's restored shalom right, to what it once was. And he will exult over you with loud singing. You know, I sing, I have, when my kids were little, and sometimes they'll roar, I'd walk around the house singing something about her, about her name, you know what I mean? <coughs> Just the little affectionate, playful things you do with your kids. Well, God is, is even beyond that. So, here we have then Zephaniah again. We have God's righteousness, we have his wrath, and we have his, um, his, his the restoration that is the hope for Anyone who will listen to these words. Um, and with that, we're going to jump over to the book of Haggai. With Brother Justin. Did you catch your breath? <laughs> <laughs> Don't linger there. <laughs> Makes my job a bit easier. Haggai is just the next page over. So. <laughs> All right. As is fitting, I have a few questions for you. Do we own our lives? Do we own our lives? Who owns our lives then? The Creator, really? 
Why does he own our lives? He gives us life, and then he takes it away at the end. That's part of it. Yep. There's another part. Why does God own the lives of believers? Oh, believers. Amen. So since God owns our lives and he has purchased them at the price of his son, how then should we live? We should live our lives in dedication to him as a people set apart for his work, for his service, for his purposes, for his kingdom. Our lives are not our own, but we were bought with a price. And I believe this theme works itself out in the book of Haggai as it talks about the obligation that God's people have to the service of his purposes as opposed to their own. Haggai is a book about stewardship, about faith, about investment, and sanctification. Haggai tells the story of a time around 520 BC, a story of returned Israelites in the land after their exile in Babylon and Assyria. Haggai is a story about a people who are concerned for themselves rather than for the things of the Lord. They are enjoying the privileges of being back in the land without regard for being back into fellowship with their God. They have not learned the lessons of the exile and realize the penalties for sin, the pain of distance from their God. And now they are back in the land and God is calling them to once again put their trust into him and set their hearts on the things that are above, not on the things that are earthly, that are fleshly. I think it's worthwhile to consider God's work in establishing this people of Israel. As I was talking about the ways in which our lives are not our own, but God owns them, that they belong to him. The same thing is true with the people of Israel. God has has worked considerably to bring these people together, to make them, to call them out of nations and establish them. First, he calls Abraham, Abram at the time, out of a pagan nation, out of pagan idolatry, and gives him great promises. He justifies Abraham by faith and names him Abraham, which means the father of many nations, giving him a promise that from him he will establish this people of Israel. Furthermore, the offspring of Abraham begin to multiply until they are carried off into Egypt and become slaves there. Yet even under that slavery, they multiply from a small clan into a nation of clans of thousands. Being in slavery, God redeems them from it with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, calling them out of Egypt and leading them into a land that they could not have ever purchased by their own strength. He casts out the nations before them and establishes them in the land, giving them victory, giving them great prosperity, a land flowing with milk and honey. He establishes them as a kingdom and prospers them greatly in many ways. It is clear from the story of Israel that this nation only exists because of God's graciousness towards them and his power in establishing them. They are not their own, but they are a nation created by God, for God, set apart to his purposes. Yet in their sin and self-reliance, they are trusting in themselves. 
because of their sinfulness in the land, God punishes them, carrying them out of this land he promised them, revoking, as it were, the blessings that he had secured for them due to their ingratitude and their idolatry. Yet, after a time, he relents, brings them back into this promised land, once again establishing them and redeeming them by his power. And still we find in the book of Haggai that they are forgetting the God who has made them, the God in whom all of their lives belong, in whom their nation rests for its existence. So they come back into the land, they lay the foundation of the temple, and then when difficulties prop up, they stop work on it. And this this halting of the work of building the temple is the clearest indication of their lack of reverence and desire for the things of God. And it is the main thing that Haggai has come to preach to them about. Let's read verses 1 through 4 of Haggai chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. This is a a picture of their, their reticence to concern themselves with the establishment of God's temple. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It is a time, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? There we have a a picture of not just them establishing homes for themselves, but building up nice homes of quality. The paneling is, is referring to improvements that they are adding to these buildings. Not simply dwellings to live in, but they are furthering their luxury in security. While the house of the Lord, the, the place where God's presence among them is being depicted, the place where they are to gather in worship and in sacrifice to their God, is lying in ruins. God pulled them out of the land. He destroyed the temple because of their sinfulness. He brought them back into the land, and yet they have failed to see the obvious implication that they are to reestablish the temple and the worship to him. That their land, their lives, their nation is not their own to do with to build paneled houses of luxury, not under the authority of others, but under their own authority. This is not the case, but rather their land, their nation and their lives belong to the Lord to establish his house and his purposes. They are lazy and ungrateful. And in the same way, we can be lazy and ungrateful. We can forget easily the grace of God in redeeming us. The great price in which he paid to call us out of sin, out of our slavery in Egypt, out of our exile in foreign lands, to be a people set apart for himself, to be a kingdom under the King Christ. And yet often... We are more concerned with establishing our own name, our own luxuries, and our own lives than with establishing the house of the Lord. We we can be more concerned with, with furthering our job than with finding time to study or be in the word or grow in godliness and maturity. Do you wait for these other tasks to be done and say, one day I'll get to the work of living after the Lord. One day I'll, I, I'll take that seriously and start doing more reading or, or memorization. Well, prayer, I mean, I say a prayer in the morning and when I eat, and that's, that's good enough, right? You know, I can wait till I retire and then I'll have time to pray. 
God owns these people and he owns us. Our lives belong to him. We can be busy with much, and like the Israelites, we can easily be forgetful of the goodness of God to us. Haggai 1, 5 through 6 continues on to say, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you, have, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag. What is this talking about? Is God just pointing out to them that they've forgotten to sew their pouches properly and so their money just falls on the ground? Or that they don't know how to make good clothing to keep warm? Is he just warning them that they need to pay attention? Lack of satisfaction. Mm. Because, I mean, they already live in their paneled houses. Yeah. Right? So it's, you know, uh, how's it go? Um, you labor for the things that do not satisfy. Yeah. He's trying to get their attention by showing them what happens when he withdraws his blessing so that what they do doesn't turn out to be very much. Yeah. That they labor and they sweat and toil. You know, like we, we learn in the curse in Genesis, you know, by the sweat of your brow, you shall yield food. You know, that this, this life under the curse of sin is a unsatisfying burden. And there will never come a day when the work is done, when you have enough if you're looking after the things of this world. It reminds me of Isaiah 55, 2, which says, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. What can a, a paneled house do for you that compares with worshiping in the house of the Lord? I think of the psalmist who says, you know, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. In the way that, that our houses do not satisfy, the house of the Lord does. What is the wages of sin? Death. The wages of sin is death. We learn that in Romans 6.23. And this is what God is pointing out here. That, that the wages for what they have earned is not satisfying. Sin promises everything, but takes everything. Which believer is happier? The one who labors all his life for a nice car, a nice house, vacations and luxury, prosperity in his job, position and status? Or the believer who turns down a promotion because he knows it will cost him time with the people <coughs> of God? Or who turns down the extra hours for a bigger paycheck at the end of the week? Because he knows he doesn't need enough money to afford one more room on his house or a brand new kitchen. But he says, I would rather be with the people of God. There are things that God has given us to enjoy and love in this life. But when those things take priority, when they eclipse our service of God, we are forgetting that our life is redeemed. So that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us and lives to the glory of God. God in his grace calls them to repent out of this. Verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Rather than dealing with the penalty of your sins, turn, repent, and obey, because my desire is to be pleased with you. I would rather come to you with love than with a rod. God proclaims his grace 
where earlier in verse 5 he says, consider your ways, and points to them the, the end of their sinful ways. He once again says, consider your ways, and calls them to see the rewards of repenting and drawing near to the Father, that he might be pleased and might be glorified by our actions. It reminds me of Isaiah 1.18, which says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And here he says, consider. You know, come now, let us reason. Consider your ways. Draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. This is the, the grace that is always abundant for God, from God for his people. We go on to read more about the, the devastation that God brings to wake people up from their sinfulness. Verse 9, you looked for much and behold it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld their dew and the earth has withheld its produce. This is God's awakening judgment, his chastisement or discipline that he uses to call his people to repentance. And wonderfully, the story doesn't end there. Because when God is calling his people to repentance, it means that there is still a chance for people to come near to him. When God proclaims wrath to people, it is not simply a forewarning of what is set in stone, but it is a call to obedience, to faith, to trust in him. Thankfully, the, the people of God here turn and obey the voice of the Lord. We read in verse 12, partway through, uh, The people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. Where God before was proclaiming to them that if they were distant from him, they would suffer greatly. He now proclaims the great grace, the, the great promise of creation from the garden and onward, you know, that, that God will dwell in the midst of man. He proclaims once again this taste of salvation from sin. I am with you, Emmanuel. How does God manifest his glory to the Israelites when the Ark of the Covenant is missing? Because obviously he's saying, I want a tabernacle with you once again, right? So how does that happen without the Ark of the Covenant? Right? Good question. Do you have an answer? Because I don't have one. The boys were Georgia, though. <laughs> were they, they were in the Bible Belt, you see, so they know the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously the dynamic of it has changed, and God has said, because God's not bound by the yeah. Ark of the Covenant as a physical thing, right? So, um, in fact... He was happy enough to dwell with the Israelites in a mobile tabernacle. Yeah. And he even said to David, right, that, do I really need it? Which way, highlights that these are only symbols of things rather than things that contain yeah, power so themselves. At one point, God takes it very seriously. The Ark of the Covenant can die for being presumptuous to God. On the other hand, he wants to dwell with his people, and he's promising them that. But the, the dynamic has changed in relationship from the physical perspective. Yeah. And I don't know. I I don't know. Have you ever heard a really good answer? And I've wondered about it myself. But Jesus does say you have turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Right. I call it his father's house. Yeah. Right. The zeal of thine house has eaten me up. 
So there's still a recognition of, of its specialness, the house of prayer. Yeah. 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 And ultimately, a lot of the laws and the old covenant are not ways in which we can, as a magic or incantation, get God into their presence. But rather, it is a a given way for them to show obedience. And God graciously allows them to draw near to him, even when... <clears throat> the the various circumstances has led to those systems being undone. Um, it wonderfully continues on from I am with you declares the Lord to verse 14. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. God does this. You know, actually, in uh, Puritan colonial America, the first, basically the first uh, public building that was built was the churches. Hmm. In one sense, you could say that that was almost a, hmm. uh, a response to the type of the response of the people. What's important <coughs> to you? Right. So people should pay for this building before they buy a new house? <laughs> well, it's interesting. Um, I mean, the priority, though, was still in their hearts yeah, to be able to want to do something like definitely. that. Definitely. Um, <clears throat> I think it's so beautiful that, that the repentance that is pictured here and the obedience that's pictured here is attributed to God working in them. It's a clear example that all throughout Scripture, the truth is that, that man is dead in their sins and trespasses and powerless to turn to God unless God moves in their heart. And this is the, the grace of God to, to stir up the leaders and the people to draw near to him, just as it is the grace of God to stir us up who were sinners who had no desire for the things of God to draw near to him. The book continues on as a month later, a month into this, this building process, God speaks through Haggai a word of encouragement to the people. He says in verse 2 of chapter 2, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not nothing in your, as nothing in your eyes? He's talking about how they might be likely to be discouraged looking at the state. Hearing of the previous grandeur of Solomon's temple and now looking at a pile of rubble that will take a great effort to rebuild. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, de declares God. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. This is a, a wonderful message of encouragement. Mm. People of God, you sit at a task that is difficult. That is a, to build a house that is far grander than anything that you could logically see yourself accomplishing. You think of the previous glory and you look at it now and you say, how is this in our power? You know, P Peter, thinking about how he had denied Christ three times, and yet Christ says, you know, feed my sheep, build my church. This is, this is God's wonderful promise. What, what do we read at the end of Matthew 28? You know, go forth into all the nations, and behold, I am with you, even unto the end of the age.
where we might, might be intimidated by the task that God sets before us in obedience. How, how would just a few people in Southbridge, Mass., be able to do anything for the sake of the gospel around the world? Our lives are busy and we're weak and tempted to sinfulness. How can we ever have any hope of accomplishing this task? Behold, I am with you. And this is what he says. He writes <coughs> through his prophet that he might encourage his pre- people. <coughs> There's a discussion of warning about how just establishing the temple in their presence <coughs> does not make them pure. Mm. But it is the first fruits of a life dedicated and sanctified to God. That just having the temple and then living like the nations will not make you pure, but will instead defile the temple. But the argument is, therefore, this temple is to be a sign that all your life is to be consecrated to God. Just as when we give in our time in our prayer, and in our money to the church. It is not a, a tax that, that God demands, like, okay, I've given you your 25%, like, like we give the government, and then the rest is mine to do with what I will. But rather, it is the first fruits. We, when we give to God, it is the, the sign that we understand our whole life to be under obligation and obedience to God. And that's the same message that's <coughs> captured in this discussion that, that unfortunately we don't have time to read through in all of its detail. But that the, the people are to give <coughs> their whole life to God. So is Haggai teaching us that if we give money to the church, God is going to make us wealthy? Is that the message here? <laughs> Don't give the prosperity proof preachers any proof text. Yeah. <laughs> so what is a teaching? God blesses those who are obedient and he uses them to do the work of God. Is that blessing primarily physical? Uh, no. It's spiritual. While at times God chooses to make manifest his favor through physical means, the New Testament is replete with teaching that the ultimate promise, the ultimate return on our investments of our lives is not in this life, but the life after. Jesus teaches in Matthew 6, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this is the message of Haggai. O people of God, do not be busy with building your own houses, but build the house of the Lord, and he will establish you. Economically, this makes no sense. There, there, there is no logical connection that if I, if I give my money and time to building this temple, that it's going to lead to less famine, more productivity on your farm, you know, like... Todd, does, does coming to church increase how much fruit you grew when you were farming? That's a tough question because, because there's a little bit of prosperity in there in the sense that obey the, the Lord, he'll bless you for obedience yeah. and faith. That, that's not untrue, but the... The ultimate is spiritual blessing more than the actual physical things you might have had. And you have to give that qualified answer right. because right. when you look at it with the eyes of man, there is no direct connection. There's no, no clear provable, I did this and you know I gave 10% and so then I received a 50% increase on that 10% back. You know, it, it's not that direct. 
And so by faith, we must offer these things up, not looking to what is seen, but to what is unseen. Well, Israel, by the way, I mean, their life didn't get any easier after Haggai and Zephaniah and all the other prophets' proclamations about building the temple. And it's not like their life got easier after the temple was finished. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we have sufferings in this life, but we look forward to a much greater blessing. 1 Corinthians 3.10 According to the gift of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it. This is the, the encouragement of Haggai to the people of God. God has laid the foundation. And he is in our midst. We are called to invest our lives as not being our own. But as being dedicated, sanctified investments waiting for the day of the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we we thank you for your word, for the ways in which you reach out to encourage us. And above all, Lord, we are in awe that you make your presence among us. Truly, this is the chief promise of all of scripture, that you would dwell with us, though we were once sinners, that you would cleanse us by your blood. Allow us to remember this as we go throughout the rest of our day, as we gather for worship, and as we prepare for the week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.